we got a letter from Adidas. Wow. A letter from Adidas that our stripes, we had two stripes and a T-bar on the side. That was our initial stripes. And they were saying it was infringing the three stripes. And, you know, they would, uh, they would take action. I said, well, that's fantastic. They've recognized us. This is The Playbook, where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is The Playbook. I have another legend, someone who I've looked up to. I've watched his career. I've surrounded myself with great ideas and people like Joe Foster, the co-founder of Reebok. And now he's written a book, which is a must read. If you're any type of entrepreneur or business person that wants to know the ins and outs of how to grow scale and be passionate and purposeful about what you do, he's the author of Shoemaker. Welcome to the playbook, Joe. Thank you for the invitation, David. Thank you indeed. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. Thank you. Well, you know, one of the greatest lessons when I have real entrepreneurs is the idea of an overnight success. So I'd love for you to share your story because, you know, the time goes by very quickly, as you know, Joe, but you are not an overnight success. I've never met an overnight success. So I'd love to know what journey it was that allowed you to accelerate, grow and believe in this compound interest of business and how it evolved to what it is today. Well, it, it, it really goes back to my grandfather. And so if we're talking about overnight, we're really talking about 1895, which is a real <laughs> long time ago. And my grandfather, he either invented or he was certainly a pioneer of the spike running shoe because in 1895, 15 years old, he made himself a pair of spike running shoes, which was very unusual in those days. In fact, it was the envy of the club that he was a member of. Um, and uh, it sort of, promoted him from midfield to becoming sort of second in a race, which he wasn't supposed to be. So all his, all his fellow athletes were so uh, impressed that uh, they, they more or less suggested he had to make more pair of shoes. That was the start of his business. And really, that's the start of the Foster family tradition of making athletic shoes, running shoes. And uh, for me, I, I don't go into the story until the mid 20th century. But uh, Grandin, he had some great ideas. He was a wonderful entrepreneur himself uh, and he knew how to influence people because by 1904, he had world records to his name. Uh, of course, in the second, uh, between 1910 and the sort of 1920, we had a world war. Um, world War I, took him away from making his athletic shoes into repairing army boots. And uh, even my father can recall scrubbing the boots down and uh, the, the water becoming red with the blood that was on them from the fields of Flanders. So he remembered that. Um, but it was 1920s. That was his belly pock, really, in the 20s. He was supplying the, every Olympic team with running shoes in, uh, from Antwerp, all the way through the 20s. And uh, I don't know if you remember the film Chariots of Fire. Of course, loved it. Oh, Chariots of Fire, of course, uh, that immortalized the athletes, uh, Harold Abrahams, Eric Liddell, and Lord Burley. They all won gold medals, and they all won them wearing my grandfather's shoes, Foster's Spikes. So that was his uh, wonderful history and his legacy. He, he died, though, in 1933, and uh, 
I wasn't born until 1935. But it so happened <laughs> I was born on his birthday. And, oh. <laughs> and what day is that? What day is that by chance? The 18th of May, 1935. He'd been born on the 18th of May, 1880. So, wow. of course, my, my grandmother was insistent that I brought my name with me. He was Joe, and I became Joe. So that's my entry into the world. But, of course, we're talking about 1935. In four years' time, we had a world war, another one. World War II. So for the first for six years of my life, between me being four and being 10, there was a world war. So again, Fosters didn't make any run issues. They were repairing army boots. And after the war, they start back on again. Unfortunately, grandfather had two sons, my uncle and father, but they just didn't get on at all. In fact, they were fighting each other. They were feuding. And you probably remember the story of Ali Dassler and Rudy Dassler, yeah. brothers. And of course, they fell out. They couldn't get on with each other. <clears throat> but it's still, and still can't, but the family is still split, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. However, Rudy, Rudy did go and set up Puma, whereas Ali was, was Adidas, of course. Unfortunately, this didn't happen in the Foster family. They just feud it. So uh, when I came into the business, which would be in 1952, <clears throat> I, well, it was a nice age, you know, usually it was girls and what do you do? You enjoy your life, you don't. But a year later, in 1953, I was 18. And at 18, I had to do national service, which meant going to the armed forces for two years. And it so happened that my brother, who was older than me, he went at the same time. So we both were away between 53 and 55. We came back in 1955. Jeff had been in Germany. He had, he had seen Adidas. He had seen what was happening with the running shoes over there and, and the sports trade. Came back, and what we came back to, after being away from the family, after experiencing what you experience when possibly university does it these days, but we were experiencing the armed forces, and we came back, and we came back to a failing company. The company was just failing. It was still making the same shoes that were making 10, 20, even 30 years ago. And uh, we tried. We, we talked to father and talked to uncle and said, come on, you need a plan here. You need to do some marketing, some sales. We've got to change. We've got to move this along. Um, we tried for three years. It just didn't work. And my father would say to me, well, when I'm gone, this business will be yours. You can do with it what you will. And of course, the thing is, I said, Dad, unfortunately, well, two things. We don't want you dead. Number one, we don't want you to go. But this business will be gone long before you're gone if we continue the way we're going. And uh, <clears throat> from that wonderful, massive, incredible start that grandfather sort of had given them, they just, uh, they just sat on the business. And it was just providing them with a nice income. So in 1958, Jeff and myself, we decided we'd had enough. That was it. We... We've got to do something. I'm 23 years old, that's all. Jeff is 25. We're young. We're indestructible. We can do anything. So we left. I just set up our own company. And we set up our own company about six miles away down the road. And we called it Mercury Sports Football. And that's how we started off. However, 18 months later, we're doing quite nicely, thank you. We're making some nice shoes. It started to work very well, but exactly what we wanted. And our accountant, we said, oh, well, you're doing quite well, but you'd better register your name. You'd better go and register that name, Mercury. 
because uh, if somebody else comes along and see you doing a nice bit of job and starts making those shoes, you'll have great difficulty. Um, probably have some legal costs if, uh, if they do that. So we said, okay, then what do we do? Well, we have to see a patent agent. A patent agent will check your name out. So we did. I was in Manchester and they checked the name out. And said, it's registered. It's pre-registered. You can't have it. <laughs> you can. <laughs> and he got in touch and they said, and the company were not using it, but they had it registered. And they said, well, you can have it for a thousand pounds. Well, in those days to us, a thousand pounds was like incredible. Say. So, <clears throat> and, and Payton said, well, you can take them to court since they're not using it. And I said, well, how much will that cost? He said, a thousand pounds. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were stuck with that. And uh, he said, your only answer to this is to, you have to change your name. Well, you know, you, we're just at a nice point in our existence making these wonderful shoes and we have to change our name. Okay, so uh, he said, bring 10. Don't bring me one then. We don't want to go through this one at a time. We want a whole bunch and let's try, try them all out. So we we ran the table there and we got all these birds, eagles, whatever, and uh, animal names, cougars, you, you name it. But one step back in 1943, during the war, I won a race, a running race, and the prize was a dictionary. And the dictionary was a Webster's Dictionary, which is an American dictionary. Now, why? At that point, we had an American dictionary, and that was about, I have no idea. But I, I resorted to the dictionary on top of these names we got, and leafing through, and I think, I like that letter R. I think it's a strong letter, that R. So I'm leaving through R's in my Webster's Dictionary and I come across Reebok. R-W-E-B-O-K. Right, wow, what's that? It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle, wow. Just right, that sounds brilliant. Now, had that been an English dictionary, it would have been spelled R-H-E-B-O-K and I'd possibly not quite as attractive as R-W-E-B-O-K. So I put this at the top of the list, went back to the patent agent and said, look, we've got these 10 names here, but this one at the top, Reebok, we love it. We've got to be in love with it. It's our passion. We need that one. And it was the only one that came through that we could use. Of all, all the others had something which was a bit of a problem with it. So we, we got this name, we got Reebok. Okay. Uh, but then the, the, uh, the, red, the registrar said, I can only put you in uh, the B section of the register. We said, well, why? He said, well, if somebody comes to me and said, um, I'm making shoes out of Reebok skin, uh, I can't stop them. Oh, okay. So we thought, well, that's a bit sort of uh, here, there, whatever. However, 20 years later, the registrar came back to us to say, we've moved you to the A section. And we said, why? He said, well, everybody now, globally knows that this that Reebok is a brand of shoes. It's no longer an animal. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so that, that's how we became Reebok. So, you know, um, listening, listening to the story, a lot, a lot of it relies on instinct and intuition. And you, you know, from picking the name to picking to move down the street, you know, we, we gloss over the fact that how difficult it must have been uh, for you guys to move down the street and when we have family involved to, to say, hey, we're going to do something on our own because we don't know what you're doing. You know, how often throughout the process 
from start to finish, do you rely on your gut feeling onto that instinct and intuition that told you, rebox the name? I, I, I just feel it inside of me that this is right. Yes. Well, you know, it, it's almost weekly. You, you feel it's almost weekly that you're, you're relying on your gut instinct that uh, something happens. Because as you probably know, um, an entrepreneur needs an awful lot of luck. <laughs> Sheer determination, yes, but a lot of luck. And, and I guess that was probably one of our first, well, maybe two pieces of luck is first luck, we had to leave in order to do it. The second bit of luck, of course, we couldn't use that name. And then along came another piece of luck because another two years later, um, we got a letter from Adidas. Wow. A letter from Adidas that our stripe, we had two stripes and a T-bar on the side. That was our initial stripes. And they were saying it was infringing the three stripes. And, you know, they would, uh, they would take action. So we went, it, it was probably one of the best letters I've ever received because I said, well, that's fantastic. They've recognized us. And they just know we're here. Yeah. <laughs> we were in somewhat. They know we're here. Yeah. <laughs> so that created another change. And that, that, uh, that change was where the vector that you see now on the side of uh, the Reebok shoes, that's where the vector came about. And that, so, you know, one could say, well, you know, that's, that's not a problem. It may have started off as a problem when you own the letter, it's from Adidas and they're threatening. But uh, at the end of that, we had a very distinctive uh, uh, silhouette for the shoe, which was to sort of be very recognizable throughout that whole, as it, as it really grew. But... Um, and and as, you, as, you, as you grew too, though, you went, and it took you, I think, over 15 years you know, in a few cracks at the U.S. market before you eventually could introduce Reebok on the world stage. So we talk about this uh, blend of determination and luck. You know, for you, you seem to be a very headstrong leader, someone that has the intuition and will do whatever it takes, first one in, last one to leave, down to the last penny invested into your company. And I have found the most common denominator of all my guests on the playbook and the celebrities, athletes, entertainers that I've represented, what I call the spirit of excellence, a, a small community of people that are the 1% of the 1%. The one thing that they have in common is a determination to be what they must be. And they end up being considered lucky. And those two things are intertwined. <laughs> I, I was hoping you could shed some light on, you know, how you didn't quit when you made so many tries to put this out to the world stage. Well, Foster's, in fact, Foster's had, uh, they did supply um, Yale University. A guy called Frank Ryan and Bob Bashir and Jack, they were head coaches at Yale. Um, but they were just supplying the track shoes. And in those days, it was performance, sheer performance. Uh, by the time we were thinking, looking at uh, America, the running craze had started. And all during the 70s, this was led by Runner's World. And Runner's World really created that business. It was, a, it was like a Bible. Everybody read that book, uh, the magazine. And of course, it did help Nike. It helped Nike grow tremendously because running grew, they grew. So when Nike growing very fast, and I was looking at America, 1968 was the first time I got the opportunity to go to America. And that's because the government in those, our government in the UK, they decided they wanted the sports business to try exports. 
And they said, okay, we, we will provide you with a stand at the NSGA show, which is National Sporting Goods in Chicago. It's in February, which is very cold in Chicago. <laughs> but, uh, but we'll supply you with a stand. We'll also uh, pay your return airfare, and we'll pay 50% of your hotel bills. I couldn't say no. So that was my first trip. And uh, I did get some people coming out to the stand. Yes, coming out your shoes. We like your shoes. Where do we get them from? England. Oh, is that New England? No, 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 no. England is across the water. <laughs> Resistance to that because all, all they really wanted to do was to buy locally. If they could buy it in the US, buy it, that would be great. It took me till 1979, till, yeah, 1979, before I got there, before I got Paul Feynman. In, in between, I had about four or five, six different. But it occurred to me that what we needed was a hook or a key. And the key came with Runner's World. Runner's World were, they were, they were rating the shoes, running shoes, number one to whatever. And if you were number one, well, you were just floored. You, you just couldn't produce enough shoes for that year. And that was okay. But the, as soon as the next rating came out, that shoe was off. And it was another shoe. The retail business they hated that, the retail, the, the sports stores, they just hated it. So I, I think he only had a couple of years of that before he changed that to becoming star ratings. Five stars would be the best, and you put your way down. And uh, I knew Bob Anderson. We'd been over to uh, California to, to see him, and we'd been to his place. And I, I figured out how we should get a five-star shoe. And we designed and designed that shoe specially, hopefully to get the five stars. And it was in 1979, we did get a five-star rated shoe. It was the same year that I'd met Paul Fireman. And Paul Fireman, um, in fact, came out, we're also interested. Came out, wanted 25,000 pairs, which was about half a year's supply from our factory. Again, we were well aware that if we got to, if we got to the market in America, if we got part of that, we needed better production. And Barter had come in to uh, say that they, they could help that. Came out also wanted a better price. <laughs> and I knew we couldn't continue making this shoe in the UK because everything was there, moving, moving to the East, moving to Korea, South Korea. Uh, so we, we'd already started talking that one. So, okay, yes, we could probably manage the 25,000 and we could probably get over a better price, but I didn't, didn't feel right. You know, it didn't feel as though it came out with love your brand. <laughs> they would probably use it nicely and if it didn't fit into the money they would make in a square meter uh, whatever you'd soon be out but Paul Feynman was different he, he, he was a I could relate to him you know he, there's some people you can talk to <clears throat> and Paul he uh, he had a small uh, distribution company called Boston Camping and uh, Boston Camping they obviously did you know to the outdoor trade they were doing tents, fishing lines, whatever it is. Uh, so we went to, we picked up, we got in together February of 1979 and the, uh, the rating of the shoe wasn't until August. So we had a few backwards and forwards, but uh, on the, um, when that edition of Runner's World was due to be uh, come out that day, I did phone Paul and said, Paul, dip down to the kiosk, go down there and see if he can find the, the runner's world, see how we did. Um, an hour later, he phoned back, Joe, you got five stars. But Aztec, 
we got it. That was the hoop. But you not only got five stars for that, we'd also sent two other shoes. One was a spike running shoe, and the other one was a road racing shoe. And he said, you got five stars for both. So we got three five-star shoes. That was the hook. That was the one. And it had taken me 10, 11 years to work the way out. How do we get into the market? Wow. And then once yeah. you guys enter the market, and obviously a high-quality product with the years of experience of what you were doing, one of the other hooks that exists today more than ever is the side that I worked on, and many of my athletes were Reebok-endorsed uh, athletes uh, that we worked with, including my business partner at one time. We had an agreement with you, uh, Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon, my business partner. We had our own Reebok beer years and years ago. Uh, but moreover, this idea of the original influencer, the, the original endorsements, the, br the branding partners that you have uh, and have had, you know, that was the last and final hook that to me re really is relevant because change is the only thing that's constant since the 1800s when this started. The only constant that I hear in your story is change. And I can't wait to read uh, The Shoemaker, which co uh, comes out, what came out September 17th, available everywhere. But how did you, you know, face the change? Because change is the only constant. What is the advice that you can give to entrepreneurs and people today because change is at an accelerated rate. We have more change in the seven months than we had in seven years. Uh, what advice can you give everyone because you've handled change so well and always somehow seem to end up on top? What advice can you give us about change? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> the one thing, the, the fact that we could start up, uh, we had to leave our factory, the Foster family factory, because they wouldn't change. They. <laughs> And there is no such thing as a plateau. You, you get the, you will start going down. You, once you got to the top, the other side of the top of the hill is going down again. So you have to change in order to and change, go to the next level, go to the next level. <clears throat> and if you, whatever business you're in, you have to know what, what's out there, what difference can you make? You know, what are the other people doing? Where are they getting their advantages from? So you have to keep change. But uh, one, one of the things that really drove Reebok again, which was a piece of luck, was Arnold Martinez, who was down in Los Angeles, he, uh, his wife, Frankie. Frankie was going to these aerobic classes and her and her friends were coming back really giggling and happy. Oh, life, what are you doing? Well, we're exercising to music. Oh, right. He thought he'd go down and have a look. He saw the uh, instructor was working out in running shoes. Half of the class were in running shoes. The other half didn't have a shoe. And it occurred to him, why don't we make a shoe specifically for this event, for aerobics? He went back to Paul Feynman and said, look, a Paul Feynman didn't want to know. He said, look, we're doing great. We're running. <laughs> what, what, what do you want to play around with some girls dancing around there in Los Angeles? No. <laughs> so he went around his back. And he got the production team to make him 200 pairs, took them back down with him, and he gave them to instructors and a few of the classes. And all of a sudden, women had a shoe. Reebok at that point were doing very nicely in running, but they were not that well-known. They were not a Nike. They were not an Adidas. They were not male. They were not sweaty. All of a sudden, women had a shoe, had a company, Reebok. This was specific, clean, nice white shoe. And of course, they're in Los Angeles. It spread. The first shoes didn't go very well because they had them made out of glove leather. And they just, but 
They're in America. It didn't matter. The girls loved them that much. They went out and bought more shoes. It, it took about two or three months to get the leather right to, so that it would stand up to the job. Uh, but it did. And then it went to Hollywood. We had Jane Fonda doing her workouts in them. Uh, we, we had... Um, Richard, yeah, Richard. You know, did you have yeah. Richard, um, what's his name, Richard, the other fitness guy? Didn't he wear Reeboks as well? Richard Simmons? Wasn't he a Reebok guy? They were all Reebok guys <laughs> in those well, days. Actually, funny enough, too, my, my business partner for the sports agency, the famous Lee Steinberg, uh, you know, Jerry yeah. McGuire of America, his yeah. favorite shoes he still wears today because he had so many pairs. He wears high-top Reebok with dress pants, with suits. He, that's his favorite pair of aerobic. He wears those aerobic shoes everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happened. And yeah, it was in, in crazy. We, we had uh, the event, the uh, Princess Grace Memorial event in, in Monte Carlo. And all the stars from Hollywood, well, they don't turn down a trip to Monte Carlo. And it was absolutely fantastic. So this thing spread. And this was the time when Instead of us pushing the business, it started to pull. It really started to take off from a nine, $9 million to $30 million to $90 million, $300 million, and $900 million in successive years. We, we finished off about $3.6 million, billion. Dollars. Really? But uh, that, that, that was the time when it was really pulling. So, and then you take, take, then you take the uh, endorsements, you, you, you get all the people in it who people respect and, uh, and impress. And so the brand grew incredibly fast. And by the time I retired in the end of 1989, um, and by that time, we we're about $3.8 billion business. And uh, for me, I, I just become, at that time, you need a lot of good people and a, a lot of people running a company. And it's becoming a numbers company by then. And yeah. That, that was beyond my sort of, no, you know, I'd had the journey. I'd been 30, 31 years of this journey. Half of it had been really tough. You know, <laughs> half of it was a struggle to get there. Once we got there, it was overnight. <laughs> exactly. That's Once a beautiful, we got there. <laughs> what a beautiful story. Everyone has to read uh, Shoemaker. They're going to learn about instinct and intuition, how change itself is a constant and determination most of all, somebody who believes and votes for what they want in their own lives. And they're not afraid of people laughing at them, scoffing at them, making fun of them, because eventually, sometimes after 31 years, they'll applaud you. And I think today, so many people around the world applaud you for the creativity and determination, change and intuition that you've had in order to, you know, a lot of people don't know, I myself have built businesses like you, not to 3.8 billion yet, but, the amount of impact you have on the world by creating jobs around the world, by making people happy, and of course, even fit, uh, get, making them healthier by providing quality products in fitness for so many years. Uh, what an honor to have you on the, in the playbook. Everyone, if you want to go back, you got to listen again, but make sure you buy Shoemaker. I am just blessed to have Joe Foster, the co-founder of Reebok, the author of Shoemaker. Thank you so much for joining me.